First on film and entertainment, the start of the awards season proper. It's probably bad language, but doesn't matter. Alex first is my name. We're going to be talking about the Golden Globes and a number of movies. And Greg King's been to Sydney. He's seen Amadeus. So, Greg, welcome back from your sojourn to the Harbour City. How was it? Oh, it was fine apart from the first two days when it was raining all day, basically, for two days. So, But otherwise, saw a bit of the city, did things, and finally cracked for a win at the trivia. Oh, very good. Terrific. Well, yeah, we, we did look at the weather then thinking, I mean, the test cricket was on. Well, it wasn't on for most of the test cricket or at least a couple of the days. Dave Griffiths, it's time they move that test, isn't it? I mean, well, it's a five to one chance compared to any other state that it's going to be raining when the test cricket's on every, every summer. Well, interesting stats um, produced by Ricky Ponting um, during this test match that since test matches started playing in Australia, 27 test matches have been washed out in Sydney, and the closest to that was four in Adelaide. Oh, my golly. What, Peter Krauss, that's extremely disturbing, is it not? Oh, I'm totally disturbed. Why can't they get a roof on all of these uh, edifices? Well, can you? Yeah, I'm not convinced, for example, putting a roof on the MCG. Uh, I, I don't know that it can be done. And the cost of doing it would be exorbitant. Uh, Dave, I'm not convinced you can put a roof on the MCG, for example. No, I I think they just need to be more creative. And one of the things that the um, International Cricket Council has said that Australia needs to play more test matches in Australia and their suggestions were to play winter test matches in Darwin and Townsville. Ah, well, that's a good idea. Let's be honest with the... The, the World Championship coming to a close, you know, the, hopefully Australia will be playing off against somebody. It depends on how they go in India and uh, also England. But the, the team that's played by far the most test matches, if you look at the past 12 months, is England. Uh, they, they outstrip some countries three to one. And, I, I, I mean, I understand you can only be judged by the, the, the battle on the field and who you play, but if you're playing three times the number of test matches... And England's got a, a whole new approach, haven't they? I mean, they, they're they belting the ball to all parts of the ground, similar to what you do in, in the 20 overs or the 50 over game. They have. Well, the International Cricket Council wants to make it that every every test team plays 30 test matches a year. Um, that's the really? amount that they, they want to have played, and that's the amount that they said will make the championship fair. Hang on, 30 test matches, five-day test matches, that's 150 days of test cricket, let alone the practising and let alone the travelling. Is that what they're saying? Yep. That, and, and that means that you're going to have specialist players who, who won't have the opportunity to play other forms of the game, surely? Exactly, yep. Wow, okay. Um, Peter, that, that's also uh, disturbing, Yes. I'm waiting for the Golden Globes. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, no, no, it's not. It may be a golden orb. Well, I'm not sure what they get if they win the World Test Championship, Dave, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I saw an interesting story during the week about uh, talking about Golden Globes, about uh, the Australian firm that each year mints the Australian Open crown, you know, the silverware, and... Yep. How it takes a year. And it was really fascinating. There was so much that went into it and the pride that they have in developing these trophies. They're quite elaborate. They really are. Beautiful. Greg, are you into tennis hey. or not? Oh, sorry, I was, um, just, I was just out in the balcony um, watching the grass grow while you were talking about the cricket. See, sorry. 
Dave, can can we help these heathens who've got no interest in in the world around them, other than sitting in a darkened cinema? What what do we do? Do we sort of take them outside and blindfold them? I mean, there's got to be a way around, you know, the the very insular focus of both Peter and Greg. What do we do? I have other interests besides sitting in darkened cinemas, um, Alex. Yeah, you do. You go to the pub and you drink. Yes, as well. I read a lot as well. I go for walks and I go occasionally go to the theatre. Remember? You, you do. In fact, you'll be talking about that. Talking about tennis, though, because the Were moment we? we were talking about tennis, uh, and and Peter eventually will get onto the Golden Globes at the end of the program. No, no, no we'll, we'll get there sooner. Uh, <laughs> I, I I attended a really interesting event. Now, Dave, you're you're probably a bit too young, but maybe you're not. In days gone by, and I remember this for the first musical, that uh, I, first big one I, I ever remember attending, and that was Les Miserables, okay? So when I attended Les Miserables, there was an after party, and at times you looked forward to the after party, well, often as much as to the actual theatrical event. And there, it was during summer, and there were ice carvings, and it was at Parliament House. It was just phenomenal, really, really phenomenal. And they did many, many. What's the top end of Collins Street? I've gone blank on what that. Uh, Paris hotel, end. The Paris end, yeah. But what was the hotel? It was called uh, by. Sofitel. The Sofitel. The Sofitel, yeah, okay. And it may have been called something else I, I, beforehand. I, I can't recall. But there were magnificent parties after shows where you went along and room after room, the ballroom and other rooms were used for these parties. And they were dress-ups and there were DJs and there were there were food stations galore and there was entertainment. And the money that they lavished on these was just astronomical. I've no idea, but I, I would imagine that you're into the six-figure mark just to throw these parties. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but not by much. It, 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 and they invited hundreds of people. Now, that used to be the case. It hasn't been lately. Have you? Did you go to any of those, Dave, or not? Oh, uh, yeah. And I go to the comedy festival ones that are still like that, where most comedians will actually have an after party in one of the hotels in the city after their um, opening night show. So, yeah, I still get to go to those as well. Get to those? Okay. But, but I wouldn't have thought the money that was lavished on a, a comedian would be anywhere near what a big sort of lame is or whatever we would be paying out. Um, I, it's not about the haves and have-nots, but I would imagine that somebody has to pay for that and the comedians don't have that sort of money, do they? Oh, the Chris Rocks and that of the world do. Oh, I suppose they do, yeah. Well, the reason I mention all of this, it's a long way of going about it. I w- had the good fortune to be invited along to see a Netflix special, which was basically called uh, uh, Breakpoint, and it dropped... The, the actual first five episodes, and there's 10 of them, the first five episodes only dropped yesterday and the opening night function at Melbourne Park was the previous evening. And we saw, I mean, it was just phenomenally well organised. I, I, hats off to, there, there was Anu Concept, who I think were the publicists for it, and uh, the, the, the Netflix people, and there, there was an, another mob as well that were involved in all of this. Uh, we are, what's it called? Uh, who, who does the Netflix, Net, Netflix publicity? There's a We Are Something. It's, it, does, does anybody know what I'm talking about here? No. Okay. It doesn't matter. But suffice to say, it was a brilliantly organised event. And we once we'd seen the first episode, which was, 
primarily about Nick Kyrgios and gave you insights. It was brilliantly directed and magnificently filmed and all this great vision. Uh, of course, it recorded what happened at last year's Aussie Open and we, we know in terms of how well Nick Kyrgios did with the, the special case with Tanasi Kokonakis and, and also he went into the second round against Daniel Medvedev in the singles. But it was more than that. It was insights into the the, the players and particularly in this case, into Nick Kyrgios and had his girlfriend and his trainer and his best mate and stuff like that. So it was a really great series and I, I, I would commend it to you. It's based on the Formula One series as well where they sort of gave people insights into a sport that many of them didn't have any insight into at all before they watched and they got involved and they, they got people involved in the sport who'd never shown an interest in the past. Did you watch any of that, Dave, in the past or not? I have, yeah, and I've seen the the different basketball ones that they've done as well. Netflix are very, very good at sports documentaries. So, yeah, Phenomenal. I, I can't just sit down and watch this one. Yeah, well, it, it's well worthwhile. So then after that, we went to Rod Laver Arena and th there's a – if you like, a, a large function area near the courts. But basically they had a cocktail function and it was so good. They had the media wall where they had Nick Kyrgios and his girlfriend and they also had uh, Isla Tomlanovic, uh, who's now Australia's number one female player now that Ash Barty has retired from the sport. They also had uh, Fritz from the United States. They, they had a number of – and and uh, another player, etc. They – they appeared uh, and the media sort of w w were grilling them and then they appeared on the stage and there was a, a compare and a number were asked questions. Nick Kyrgios wasn't one of those. And then they had a second screening for those people who missed the first one. But there were beautiful there were beautiful prawns and seafood and champagne and all that sort of stuff. So it was a, a grand affair. And after that, you could go onto Rod Laver Arena and they were doing the practice for the Aussie Open. And what well, the, the night that this was on, it was Rafael Nadal playing. Now, unlike Friday night, which was a sellout in an hour, Nick Kyrgios and uh, and uh, sort of number one, well, he the former number one who's now going for his Grand Slam equalisation with Rafael Nadal, I'm talking about the Joker, Djokovic, uh, that match, you know, 15,000 seats sold in, in an hour. Uh, this one only had about oh, a, a couple of hundred people there. So you could sit anywhere you wanted to. And you know, it was lovely. It was a beautiful night. Finally, summer's arrived in Melbourne. So it was lovely walking back to the car. We managed to get a, a spot opposite the Yarra there. And I just wanted to sort of commend the organisers. I don't do this as a matter of course, but it was such a well-produced event overall. You know, I can't imagine the amount of money they spent on it, but obviously a lot's gone into the marketing of this series. The the one thing that interests me, you know, Dave, how you've, you've mentioned you've seen basketball ones because you're interested in basketball and also Formula One. So all of that's fine. But I'm just wondering, those people who would not be interested in tennis, do you think a series like this could interest them based on your experiences of this sort of Netflix program? What do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. I know a few people who have watched the basketball ones who aren't necessarily interested in, in basketball and some of the NFL ones as well. And because a lot of those times they'll look at one player in their career. So it becomes a, a biographical documentary, which a lot of people out there, I have one person who tells me all the time, I want to learn about people. So he doesn't care what biography it is. Mm -hmm. He'll sit down and watch it or read it. So yeah, I think it will. 
Oh, it, I, I mean, I honestly didn't learn, learn a great deal more about Nick Kyrgios than I'd sort of known, other than the cinematography was magnificent. I, I, I suppose that uh, there, there was one thing, and this was, again, leaked, I suppose, ahead of time, uh, that he, he used to go on sort of drinking, I don't know whether we'd call them binges or whatever, but and he used to have very few hours sleep, et cetera, but that's changed. And he was sort of conversing with uh, Kokonakis, Tanasi Kokonakis, about this because the two of them used to do that together. Uh, they talk about a urine test and stuff like that after, you know, what I suppose in, in all sorts of sports they're made to do. But I, I didn't learn a great deal. Nevertheless, I found it quite compelling. Uh, and they're... they're um, they're beautifully orchestrated. So I would commend it. It's called Breakpoint, and you know, which is obviously in reference to the tennis. And uh, it's it's one that's worth seeing if you've got Netflix. If not, you might like to try Netflix and um, and see whether this uh, sort of excites you. And then you can either keep it or not. But uh, that's the starting point. Let's now go to indeed talking about what Peter Krauss wanted to talk about, which is the Golden Globe Awards. And I mean, I think that the saddest part was the subsequent, I mean, obviously Elvis did well and Austin Butler did well, and he thanked um, the Presleys, and and two days later Lisa Marie unfortunately uh, meets a maker, so to speak, at 54 years of age. That's just tragic. I mean, she her whole life, if you look at it, was tragic. Wasn't it, Dave? It was, and she was actually there at the Golden Globe. She was one of the yeah. first people to congratulate Austin Butler on his win. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's Greg. Have you sort of she she was trying to be a singer in her own right. She did a couple of sort of covers with her dad. You know, the late Elvis, and you know that worked. Uh, they one of those in particular, I think, worked really, really well. Uh, did you follow her career as somebody who follows music? Not really, but I know she married to um, Michael Jackson at one stage and um, Nick Cage at one stage. Yeah, four marriages, including those two high-profile ones. What about you, uh, Peter? Did, did you follow her career at all? Not particularly. And, and again, this goes back to something we've talked about before. Is this discussion about her life rather invasive? Yeah, but, I mean, I suppose what does the world owe somebody after they've passed? Isn't it the truth? I mean, this is, this is the week that George Pell passed away as well, really unexpectedly, after what for many people, is routine surgery. And and unfortunately, in the case of George Pell, uh, it, it, it wasn't. But, I mean, if you think about the tributes and the brickbats that have been thrown at him, it's because of the life that he lived and the way he lived it and so on. Now, isn't the truth what is needed at, at this time? I mean, some people will be absolutely horrified by uh, by what what goes on and other people are going to say, well, that the truth is all that really counts. So you don't agree with that, Peter? Well, it depends on the program. I, I thought this show was a bit more about discussing the films and programs uh, rather than the private lives of various people. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I suppose I make it up as I go along, but I think the private lives of people, uh, especially if you're in the public eye, I mean, some people can handle it, other people can't. Some people don't want to be in the public eye. And, I mean, we talked about Ash Barty. She she had a lot of living to do that was outside the tennis court. And so at age 26, she retires. Well, you know, th that's happened in the past as well. Now, I, I don't, I, I mean, there's a curiosity, a natural curiosity that people have. That's what human beings are like. And you could call it snooping, you can call it whatever you will, but 
people are interested in the lives of people. You you think? Did you read the story about Jack Nicholson this week, Peter? No. Okay. Now, I, I did. It, did either of the other two of you read that story this week about how he's he's ultimately a recluse and his health is an issue and all that sort of stuff? Did you read that, Greg? No. Okay. And Dave? I've been out, in I've been out of touch with the news. What? Just no. Because- you go, okay, just because you go interstate doesn't mean you're out of touch with the news. If you no, tra- but I, I sort of switch off a little bit. Okay, well, fair enough. But, again, this is about a – I think he'd be about 85 by now, I'm guessing. I don't have an exact age, but he'd be about 85 by now. And he was sort of somebody who was very much out there and uh, is somebody who was interacting with a lot of people, but he's, he's now apparently all but a recluse. Now, that's sad. but. You know, it was reported accordingly. Should that not be record, reported at all because that's his private life, Peter? No, I, I'm betwixt and between on this one. I think to some extent it shouldn't be because it's just their personal lives. Why uh, does the media have to be so intrusive about exactly. uh, his condition? That's what we are. We're nosy. That's the me. And, and I, I'm sorry, the ambulance chasing mentality that people have, God forbid, when there's a car accident, you know, the, the, the rubberneckers and whatever, it happens. That's what a human being is. It, it doesn't mean everyone's like that, but I think a large proportion of people are. Why do you think gossip does so damn well? I mean... I think we, I think we have to be careful, though, when there's a, a case like Lisa Marie to, of what we read, of whether it's speculation or truth. I mean, I saw the documentary that was put together after Paul Walker died tragically in that car accident, and... One of the things that they said was so heartbreaking for his family after he died in that accident was that there were news agencies and and reputable newspapers running articles about him and the accident that were completely untrue. Um, And they said they had no idea where those reports were coming from. But a lot of it, and they said in the, I remember the stat, they said 80% of what they were reading were not true about the accident. Well, again, this is the problem that, I mean, I I learned very early on in my journalistic career that you've got to check with at least two sources. Now, what else can one do, Dave? I mean, that you know, you you follow that protocol, and hopefully, it's not just conjecture. Because the the, the George Pearl thing, I was I happened to be listening to Three AW at the time, and the Tony Jones was filling in for Neil Mitchell, and he talked about the fact that normally we don't report rumours, but it's been reported on social media now twice by two people and it turned out to be true. Now, you know, so when there's speculation, sometimes people have been speculated to be dead and they haven't been. So, I mean, the the media is fallible and you're quite right when something that's scurrilous affects the family. And I, Peter, I think that's where you're coming from as well. I, is it not? That That's terrible. I, I totally agree. But does that mean we shouldn't be reporting on this stuff at all and we shouldn't be giving tributes and we shouldn't be looking at people's careers? I don't think that that's the case, personally. Well, well it, the word should is a difficult one because it's always going to be individual. I mean, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Dominic Perrottet. Well, we can many, mention Dominic Perrottet and we should. I mean, this is a, a Jewish radio station and it's an it's a very interesting discussion. It doesn't mean that people who are non-Jewish cannot listen to the radio station. It, quite quite the contrary. But having said that, uh, at 21 years of age, you have a 21st birthday party and you wear a Nazi outfit. Is it appropriate? No, no. I mean, are there some no-go zones? Correct. I think there are. Uh, you know, it, it's 
what what's that movie that was banned in Australia for years and years, and and it, it involved defecating and kids and all that sort of stuff? What was that um, movie? Salem. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Now again, I generally do not believe in censorship, but I think there are things. There are product. There, there is movies, there, there, are, there are movies, there are shows that, that, that aren't appropriate. And, I mean, remember the controversy created by Piss Christ. So there's a lot of things here, you know, and, and Prince Harry, of course, also wore a Nazi uniform and is, is deeply mm. regretful. Now, we've all done silly things, and this is the excuse that's given, but at 21 years of age, as Dominic Perrottet was, uh, you think you'd know better. Now, Okay, he did the. He certainly did the right thing by apologising and immediately meeting the Jewish community. The the, the cynical amongst the, the the great unwashed us sort of says, well, you know, we're talking about an election campaign. They're electing a new new government in March, and he wanted to get in ahead of the game before photographs were leaked of him wearing that outfit. If indeed the photographs are available, which they are apparently. So, I mean. The cynical will say, well, you know, he's only trying to protect his political skin. If you've done the wrong thing and you apologise, what more can you do, right, if it's a sincere apology? So that's Do you think, though, that part of the problem there is that nobody in the media asked the right questions? Because if I'd been in that media pack in front of him when he did that apology, my first question would have been, why did you wear it? I mean, at 21 years of age, I'd knew that you don't do things like that. I knew that Nazis Correct. were bad people. Um, and that's the point that I raised. That's the question I raised. At 21, you'd think you know better. So that's that yeah. you're right. That's that's a question that should have been raised. But, okay, so uh, do you think the answer to that may have been, well, look, you know, I, I, I didn't pay enough attention to the world around me and I, I should have been more sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. That may have been well, the answer. I'm- I'm not going to speculate because you could have had a hundred answers there. You could have had the, I did it as a joke or, or something like that. But uh, uh, to me, that's one of the biggest problems these days is that politicians fill their media pit with journalists. They know are not going to ask the questions that they don't want to have to up uh, to answer. And I think that's where the, the biggest fault with media is these days is that journalists out there just don't ask the questions that they should be asking. Well, again, you know, the, the, the situation, for example, where should a politician appear on radio programs all the time? And you think about our premier in Victoria who has decided not to appear on Neil Mitchell. Now, you know, is that right or wrong? Well, I suppose he's got a right to not appear, but then the, the radio station's got a right to ask the question, well, you know, why... Why why won't you appear and why won't you stand up to tough questioning? From from my perspective, I, I mean, I, it's it's very difficult to justify why at age twenty one you would do that and the insensitivity shown. And will it affect his electoral chances? I think it will. I personally think it will. I'm talking about Dominic Perrottet. What do you think, Dave? Oh, I think I think he's pretty much already sunk in. New South Wales, anyway, from some of the things that I've been reading recently, I think that New South Wales is going to go the same way as what Australia and Victoria did with the last elections. Well, then we're only going to have one. We're going to have one state that has a Liberal government, and that is the Tasmania, to the best of my knowledge. The one, what about you, Greg? Do you do you think that uh, 
Dominic Perrottet will should have done something sooner. I mean, obviously he was aware of this, that this could have come up at any time right throughout his political career. Should he have said something, you know, way back when he was even sort of put up for Premier? Uh, I don't know, Alex. I haven't read much about what's going on. And, um, look, it's come out now and he's got to wear the consequences of doing something silly. He does. And 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 as we've just said, the, the, the consequences could be supreme. And the, the 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 interesting thing about this is it came from his own party, Dave, didn't it? The leak. It did. Yeah. So you know, again, uh, you know, eating your own kind of thing. It's uh, it's fascinating. So I mean, uh, so you're not into this gossip at all, Peter? All of this stuff that we've just talked about. No, no. I mean, some of these things have to be reported, and I agree with Dave that you need to ask the right questions of uh, various people. But uh, a lot of this is just over the top and speculation and uh, and invasive, and it it just needs to the media just needs to tone it down a bit. Let let me pr- bring you back to film, though, Peter. Uh, and this is a genuinely this is a serious question. You and Dave do a lot of interviews. I, I've done quite a lot of interviews in the past as well. Now, because you're reviewing a movie, which you may or may not like. Agree, Peter? You may or may not like the film, regardless yeah. of who you're interviewing. Do you honestly ask the hard questions or do you not? Sometimes you're told by the publicist what you can't cover, which is very frustrating. Uh, and at times I would like to ask, you know, if you didn't like the film, I, I'd love to be able to say to the the person that you're interviewing without being disrespectful, look, I, I didn't like this aspect of the film, et cetera, et cetera. Now, how often do you do that? I don't because I separate out interviews about the filmmaking process from reviewing the film. I don't think it's appropriate to, uh, to to give a review of a film during an interview and then to ask a filmmaker to justify uh, whether the film was good or bad or anything like that. I think that's totally irrelevant. It's all about the, the process. So uh, okay, two things are separate. I totally disagree with you, totally disagree with you, couldn't disagree more. The fact is that you've seen the product, you're a film reviewer, you're interviewing a director or an artist or whatever, and I think it's incumbent upon one to ask the tough questions, but that's just my view. Uh, As somebody who's been a a pretty hard-nosed journo all his life, that's my honest opinion. That's not to say that I don't respect the fact that you've got a difference of opinion, but that's not how I I, I would choose to handle things if if I had my way. What about you, Dave? Oh, well, I would never ask a question such as, I thought the screenplay was bad, should you have done a rewrite? I would never ask a question like that during an interview. I'm the same as Peter. I don't put my personal opinion of the film into the interview, but just touching on what you said before about um, publicists saying what you can and can't ask, in 25 years of doing um, film and music interviews, that's only happened to me a handful of times, and normally it's been if I'm interviewing somebody like Courtney Love or someone like that, and I'll be told this is about her album, it's not about her personal life, so please don't ask any questions about her personal life. But I've never been told by a film publicist that you can't ask this question or or that question. But you have um, been told how much time. You have been told how much time you've got. Oh, how much time, yeah. And occasionally I do get one if, uh, say, an actor is in two films at the same time, that, that publicist will say, can you please keep the questions to this film and not about their Marvel film that they've got about to come out or something like that. But I've never, ever had 
Um, I've never had a publicist cut off an interview because of a question that I've asked or anything like that. And I've got into some controversial topics before. I've spoken to filmmakers that have made controversial um, films and I've asked them about why they've decided that that topic was okay to explore and things like that. And I've never had an issue. No, and I think that, that Peter, that, that goes back to just to talk to you about uh, what your view is, which is the same as Dave's. Uh, I, I think the way you pose the question is the art of journalism. So th that's a good example that you've just cited, Dave, in terms of, okay, it's a really controversial area. Uh, you realise you're going to offend a lot of people by going down that route. Why did you think it was appropriate? That, that's a re To me, that's a reasonable question. Would you ask something like that, Peter? That's a fair enough question because you ask about the, uh, the sort of the writing, the process, anything that's controversial about the the actual storyline. You might ask what made you decide to go this way, something like that. But again, you don't put your personal opinion into the interview. It's okay. all about okay. process. So maybe we're not so different because that that to me is the way around it. You don't and have to say you haven't you haven't asked me my opinion on this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sorry Greg. Alex. I'm sorry, Greg. That. I didn't mean yeah. to offend you, and I genuinely am sorry that I, I I hadn't involved you till this point. So yes, you do 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 a lot of interviews, and in fact, you do them each week. So d do you ever ask hard questions, Greg? Uh, no, I'm like Peter and Dave say about the process of putting the film together, a little bit about their career, um, putting the film, the script, and all that, working with actors and all that kind of thing. I think the most controversial question I've ever asked a filmmaker is when I interviewed Luca Guadagnino about. Call you by your name, and there are some articles in the paper that came out that week where some people were dismissing um, the film and calling um, the Army Hammer character a pedophile. And I just asked him about that one and got a big long answer about it, which addressed the issue when he said basically all that stuff is bullshit and he doesn't pay attention to it and all that kind of stuff. But because it, it was in the news at the time, I just thought I'd throw it into the interview. But yeah. basically, I just talk about the film, the filmmaker's career, or the actor and their career making the film, putting the script together, all that kind of stuff. So so then, okay, in terms of moving from the interview phase, Greg, to then, like I know you and I often speak about movies, et cetera, would you immediately after an interview then review the film and review it unfavourably if you didn't like it? Would you yeah, do that? If I didn't like it, I'd still review it unfavourably, but I, I'd keep that from the um, director. Yeah. So, okay, uh, I suppose the question then is, is that – fair on the director that if the director ever goes to your website or pardon me listens back to your interview uh the interview is wonderful but then you you pan the film is that appropriate why not what, what about I, you? I don't see a problem with that at all. Again, it's a separation between uh, your personal view of a film and the process of discussing a film. Um we we have to separate those out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well let, let's get. Were there any real shocks in the Golden Globes? I mean, the the one that I really wanted to win won, which was Kate Blanchett, because I I have no doubt in my mind I'm totally convinced that she will win the not just the Golden Globe but the Oscar. And I suppose were, were there any real shocks or surprises? Uh, let's start with you, Peter, that that uh, you can point to. Well, uh, to some extent, I was surprised, but uh, pleased to see the Fablemans won Best Film Drama. Mm -hmm. uh, but Banshees of Inisherin, which uh, won Best Film Musical yeah. Comedy, um, the Oscars, of course, don't separate out those genres. Correct. So it'll be more competitive, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought Banshees is more in line to win the, the Oscar there. 
than than yeah because you've got those you've got more categories if you like that uh, the two films can appear in. Uh, I was disappointed Top Gun Maverick, um, which was a really engaging film. Yeah, I, I was disappointed that that didn't win best drama motion picture. What about you, um, Dave? Any surprises? Um, I was surprised at the success of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once because, of course, that film made my worst list of the year. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people out there loved it, but I absolutely despised it. I thought it was one of those films that, that might get nominations, but I didn't expect for it to actually pick up awards, um, especially did. in the categories that it did. I did. I did. I, I, it's one of Jackie Hamilton, who's not with us today, unfortunately. It's one of her favourite films, and she said to me, you should go along and see it again and maybe change your mind. Uh, and I'm thinking, no, no, I really don't want to go along and see it again. Um, I, I found it interesting that even though the Banshees of Inner Sharon won the uh, musical or comedy motion picture title, that Babylon was in there, which has been – Gee, it's been badly reviewed and panned, hasn't it, uh, Greg? Um, I haven't read many, tried to avoid reviews because I haven't seen the film yet. Well, what about you, Peter? Are you, I mean, you'd be aware that Babylon hasn't exactly set the box office alight, has it, in America? Again, I, I haven't seen the film yet either, so it's too difficult to make a judgment. There seems to be some adversity towards Damien Chazelle. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea. The the um the other nominations in that musical or comedy motion picture category were you know, interesting ones. Glass Onion and Knives Out, Mystery and Triangle of Sadness, which uh, we which is a very good movie. So, uh, Greg, any surprises for you in the Golden Globes? Uh, not that I not that I know of. No. No. Okay. So, I mean, look, the just to go through, Austin Butler won for Elvis. Uh, then. In, I'm just going through major, major categories. You've already mentioned Fableman's one drama motion picture, Kate Blanchett one actress, The Banshees of Inner Sharon one musical or comedy motion picture, the Cecil B. DeMille Award uh, for Lifetime Achievement, Eddie Murphy won that. Jeez, uh, he's, he's had a long career, hasn't he? I, I, I tell you what, I think he, he still looks damn good. How old is Eddie Murphy these days? I have no idea. He looks younger than he, he really is, surely. Yeah, he must be in his early 60s now. Yeah, I would have thought so. Michelle Yeoh won for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. That's an actress in a musical or comedy motion picture. What What other awards? Foreign language film, Argentina. Eddie Murphy is 61. 62 this year. 62. Thank you, Greg. 62 this year. Okay. And the foreign language film was won by Argentina. That Has, has that come out here yet? Argentina, 1985? No. I checked that out. It's a, it's a prime, Amazon Prime release, uh, supposedly in in Australia, but it may get a cinematic run because of the awards it's getting. Ah, got it. Okay. Well, that's, that'd be a good idea. Actor in a musical or comedy film was Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inner Sharon. I think that was a very good choice. Uh, the the uh, By the way, have we seen White Noise out here? Yes, the, are we, yes we have. We were in cinemas, we were in cinemas at the end of last year. End, yes. of last, end of last year. Okay. All right. I can't recall having seen it. Then supporting actress in a motion picture, Angela Bassett won for Black Panther. Was that a bit of a surprise or not really? It was. I would have thought Kerry Condon would so have won it for Banshees. Kerry Condon as well, yeah, for the Banshees yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, now, then, then we've got uh, supporting actor in a motion picture. I, I apologise if I mispronounce the name. K. Hugh Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, that was a very good role as well. But... Um, I would have thought Barry Keehan, The Banshees of Inner Sharon, was, uh, would have been right up there as well as Brendan Gleeson, but there you go. Uh, animated feature Pinocchio, uh, 
beat Marcel the Shell with shoes on. And I got the two Pinocchios confused, as I'd mentioned to you the other day. By the way, Peter had a birthday during the week, so our happiest of birthdays. And he was all in black. And the only thing you needed was the sash. I wish you'd told me in advance. I could have presented it to you in front of the whole audience, Peter. Uh, and the Oscar goes to. <laughs> well, I mean, would that that have been appropriate, you know, Golden Globes week. You didn't, you didn't give me any notice, you know. Oh dear, sorry about that. I, I could have presented you with the Essendon pack. Um, uh. yeah, yeah. And by the way, we're talking about football again, Dave. Um, what's this nonsense about you spending all this money on redoing a building or something in Sydney, and now that's your your home next to your ground? How much money does Sydney have? What's going on here? Oh, that, that's a little bit of a trade secret. But, yeah, the Swans got a brand-new training facility because they um, they bought one of the buildings as part of the um, the showgrounds, which is interesting because that's supposed to be GWS's facility. Yeah, exactly. So you you and them are having a ding-dong Barney again. Any opportunity to have a go at your competition is what I say. We're going back to films. Original score was Babylon. So there you go. It did win, a, win an award. And, and Steven Spielberg, of course, won the... Best director of a motion picture. So, and screenplay, The Banshees of Inner Sharon. I'm not at all supply, surprised by that for Martin McDonough. And uh, don't forget the Indian film Triple R, which won yes, Best Original Song. Which is great, which is terrific, which again, I haven't seen. Was Triple R in, in the movies? It, it it's was. On Netflix. It's oh. on Netflix now. And so is White Noise, by the way. Oh, oh okay. I, I, I just haven't had time because of. Of life, I, I really think I have to get onto that Netflix thing because there's so many. Netflix seem to win more awards than any other uh, streaming platform at the moment. Is that correct, or am I just uh, imagining that? No, I think that's true. That is true. Okay. All right. So, anything? Any further comments about the the? What sort of pointer are these to the Oscars? Do you, do you think they're? I mean, what what's the closest awards that that are real pointers to the Oscars? If if it's not the Golden Globes, what is it? Well, it might be the Screen Actors Guild and the BAFTAs. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any further further advancement on that, Dave? No, I'd, I'd say Peter's right there. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and how politically correct were these uh, awards after having missed a year because there weren't enough voting members that were uh, in, in the right diverse groups? How, how diverse were the awards this year? What do you reckon, Peter? Oh, they were certainly very diverse. I mean, many of them deserved, of course, but uh, it does recognise that uh, it is a much more uh, open uh, voting fraternity now as part of the Hollywood Foreign Press. Yeah, exactly. All right, what we are going to talk about, uh, if we've got time to get through them all, uh, three movies. Emily is probably my pick of the three, uh, and this is the account of Emily Bronte, the writer of Wuthering Heights, Two hours, 10 minutes, M-rated, and it, it's tense throughout. It, it's a fictitious account, we should say, of the lauded 19th century writer and poet. A role filled, do you pronounce her name Mackie, M-A-C-K-E-Y, Emma Mackie? Yes, that's what Rob said, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. So, sorry, who's Rob? Rob Connolly, the uh, producer of the oh, film. Okay, thank you. Um, as a youngster, Emily Bronte enjoyed making up stories, according to what we see in this movie. She was considered odd, deviating from the norm, and her mind worked differently to others. She was comfortable in the company of family, but she really did struggle in outside settings. Her father was the local priest, her father's name Patrick, played by Adrian Dunbar. He was a disciplinarian who expected a great deal of his offspring, 
which wasn't always delivered. And a young vicar arrives in the parish called William Waitman, played by Oliver Jackson Cohen. And, and that saw tensions rise. With Emily drawn to him, he gave her French lessons and, and he was drawn to her. She was also being led astray by her layabout brother, Branwell. Theon Whitehead plays that role. All the while, the one constant was Emily's fertile imagination and poetic bent, which was recognised by all who chanced upon her prose. So it is that Emily the movie is the story of a loner with smarts and a great turn of phrase who was misunderstood. And the Australian actress turned writer and director Frances O'Connor is the one who's woven quite a compelling tale. I've got to say, I was drawn in and held tight throughout the two hours and ten minutes. I was really impressed by Emma Mackey. I thought she was really strong in the lead. There's an intensity about her performance, and she sort of plays Emily as reflective, as passionate, not afraid to speak her mind. What did you think of the film, Greg? I haven't seen it yet. Okay, so there we go. What about you, Peter? Uh, look, because it's based on uh, very little material that is available about Emily Bronte, this is a, a good fanciful adaptation of uh, Emily Bronte's writing, Wuthering Heights. And I think it is very well filmed, very well written and directed. And uh, I spoke to Robert Connolly this morning because, of course, apart from Blueback, he also produced um, Emily. And he told me about how the material was put together, uh, the screenplay. Uh, based on very little known information about Emily Bronte. So, look, it's very well filmed, a lot so of handheld camera. So how was it put together? Because did they make it, did they make it all up or what, what, what went on? It was, it was. It was a completely concocted story um, going backwards from the Wuthering Heights tale, which is a very strong romantic drama, uh, romantic story, uh, and then putting together a story that would possibly explain Explain how Emily Bronte could become so passionate to eventually write the story. Mm. Uh, what did you think of uh, Oliver Jackson Cohen's performance as William Waitman, Dave? Oh, I thought it was really good. I have to admit, I completely loved this film. Um, the Brontes family were one of the most fascinating families I got to learn about when I was at uni, and I loved reading anything I could that were written by any of them. And I just fell in love with this film straight away. Um, Frances O'Connor, I think, has to be one of the most exciting directors out there. This is her debut feature. Mm. And to me, this film is almost a masterpiece to me. I absolutely adored the film. And um, to think that Frances O'Connor is probably going to get better and better as a director as the years go by, it's kind of a, a scary thing for me because I, I found this film just absolutely brilliant. It's wonderful that you've got, and this is not unusual, an actress that sort of turned turned into writer and director and, and so on. And, yeah, you, you she really announces herself, no question about that, with this film. I, I thought that uh, Oliver Jackson Cohen was, was sort of really strong, you know, God-fearing, lustful as, as William Waitman. Fionn Whitehead, really, I mean, what, what a role to play, a, a, a real layabout, readily slipped into the persona of, of this sort of wayward brother. And he's certainly a character that's prone to weakness and excess. And then you've got the the sisters, uh, Alexandra Dowling, channel, channels sort of goody two-shoes really as the, the sister Charlotte, and um, she's quite prominent as well. And Adrian Dunbar, this sort of stiff upper lip preacher father, Patrick, I, I thought there was a lot of period detail there. The wild outdoor settings were really well captured by the cinematographer Nanu Siegel. And the composer, 
Now, I'll try and pronounce his name. Abel is his first name, A-B-E-L. Korzanowski, uh, the score really serves to heighten the moments of tension and desire. It's fascinating when sometimes, often we don't comment upon the score, but how how influential it can be in determining the direction of a movie and almost signalling the path that it's going to take. Hardly an easy life, uh, as presented here for Emily Bronte, a woman who didn't conveniently fit into society's norms. So uh, I reckon it's well worth seeing. Uh, Peter, are they coming to take you away? Absolutely. I'll be gone in a minute. <laughs> this is, this is your, your paper-thin walls, extraordinary. Uh, I, I, definitely a movie well worth seeing, wouldn't you say, Peter? Uh, definitely, yes. Score out of 10. Emily, M-rated, runs for two hours 10. What, what are you going to give it, Peter? It, it's a good fanciful concoction of uh, the Emily Bronte story of Wuthering Heights, so I give it 8 out of 10. Likewise, I'm giving it an 8, and Dave, I suspect you're, you're going to go even higher, are you not? I am. It took me seven months last year to give my first 10, but it's oh, only taken a few weeks. I'm giving it 10. I thought this was an absolute masterpiece. I've already seen it twice, and I want to go back and see it again. Oh, my golly. Gee was. I, I think that's really – that's gilding the lily as far as I'm concerned, but it's a good film. But you're saying it's a great film. Wow. Okay. How many, did you, think, how many did you say you gave 10 to last year? I only gave 10 last year to three films, so, yeah. Which were gone, if you remember them? What were the three? I, I can't actually remember, remember, to be honest. No, I'm going enough. through my, doing my best and worst list at the moment. So, yeah, I can't actually no, remember the, which three it was. All right, let's go on to a movie called Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre. Uh, first question I've got for, for you, the linguist, Peter, why would they put a, I presume it's a French name at the end of an American, uh, an English film, a Guy Ritchie movie? Why wouldn't they call it Operation Fortune Ruse of War, which it means? Uh, it's a very good question. I suppose it gives it international currency to give it that sort of French moniker. Well, does it? I, I, yeah, I, it's just, to me it was an unusual choice is all I can say. Not that I'm against it, don't get me wrong, but it, it um, yeah, it's, it's sort of and, – and many people are just calling it Operation Fortune because this is, this is a new franchise, presumably. I mean, if it goes well – they may have a second and a third. It's a rollicking, globe-trotting actioner. I've mentioned the the director and co-writer is Guy Ritchie. A lot of fun, keeps things moving, and um, he's developed the script with a couple of co-writers with whom he's worked on his past three movies. Talk about Ivan Atkinson and Marne Davies. It starts with 26 security guards murdered in Odessa. I'm not giving too much away here. This is only the very beginning. Shadowy UK intelligence organisation trying to track down who's behind the raid that resulted in in the, this item called the handle being stolen. But neither the agency nor the team of operatives that have been engaged to find it know exactly what that object is. They understand, though, it carries a huge price tag of US $10 billion. That's with a B. The recruiter is a guy called Norman, played by Eddie Marson. He calls in Nathan Jasmine, Kerry Yules, to assemble a crack team. Jasmine's first choice in that team well, isn't the easiest man to work with, but he's someone in whom he has total faith. A guy called Orson Fortune, played by Jason Statham. Fortune's choice of sidekick, a guy called Mike, played by Peter Ferdinando, is not available. So in comes a US cyber tech whiz called Sarah Fidel, played by Aubrey Plaza. And to complete the triumvirate, 
there's this up-and-comer called J.J. Davies, played by Bugsy Malone, master of communications, of weaponry and driving. But the trio aren't the only ones looking to claim this prize. And the mission leads them to an international billionaire arms dealer called Greg Simons, played by Hugh Grant. He's not just your regulation villain. He's obsessed with movie stars. One in particular named Danny Francesco, played by Josh Hartnett. So there we go. Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre sees Richie reunited with both Jason Statham, with whom he worked on Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, Revolver and Wrath of Man, and Hugh Grant. They work together on The Gentleman. So plentiful supply of thrills and good humour follows a tried and true formula, tried and true formula, which Richie does better than most. Not, I would call, his most sophisticated work, though, Greg, but it's easy to watch. It's, it's escapist fare, isn't it? It is. It's cliched, formulaic, globe-trotting spy adventure. It kicks all the right boxes for the genre, though, and the MacGuffin here is that thing you call that the handle, which is stolen from a secret laboratory there. Um, look, it's just an, an excuse to hang lots of action sequences together there. They're well staged, and there's a lot of humour here as well. Um, Jason Statham does his usual um, tough guy scowl um, as he dispatches lots of villains with... Um, the odd dry one-liner there. I thought um, Hugh Grant was having fun here as the um, sleazy billionaire philanthropist arms dealer villain, um, and he sort of oozes charm and sleaze in the right amounts there. Audrey Plaza did quite well as the um, kick-ass action hero heroine here who supports Orson Fortune. What a great name for a hero that one is. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, nothing subtle here about it, but it's basically um, – by Richie putting together his usual collaborators, including people like Eddie Marson, who he's worked with quite a few times as well. And this is his fifth collaboration with Jason Statham. But look, uh, look, it's going to please the fans. Uh, it's got well choreographed physicists, spectacular pyrotechnics, a high body count, exotic locations. What more do you want? It's got his usual muscular approach to um, action. Exactly. exactly. Now, um, I've taken up far too much time talking about other things, so I'll, I'll ask you to keep this brief. Peter, your thoughts? Uh, look, it's a, it is a standard uh, action, uh, James Bondish type uh, um, spy film. Remarkable is uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a particular scene uh, of raindrops keep falling on my head. I thought uh, because Guy Ritchie, uh, it seems, has been influenced by that film uh, in being a filmmaker himself. Look, it's, it's well done. I, I like Josh Hartnett uh, sending himself up to some extent better than Nicolas Cage, I thought, uh, in this film. It's okay and it was shot largely in turkey and it was shelved for 12 months the film because of the ukrainian issue oh i see and and what about you dave did you enjoy audrey Aubrey plaza i thought she she impressed as the intelligent femme fatale oh definitely yeah look this is a big dumb action film it does its job i enjoyed it um I love seeing Josh Harnett um, back. Um, of course, um, Guy Ritchie tried to reboot his career with Wrath of Man, and hopefully we do get to see him in some other things. But I thought Hugh Grant stole the show here. I thought Hugh Grant was just absolutely brilliant as this uh, character who's obsessed by actors, but also he plays a character where you're not really sure whether he's going to go to the, the good side or the dark side. So, um, yeah, I thought that was the, the saving grace for this film was... Uh, Plaza, Grant and Hartnett's performances. Performances, yeah. I mean, Grant was terrific in The Gentleman, which was 2019, and uh, I think he revels in this role as this unscrupulous, wealthy, sleazy business broker. Let's get a score out of 10, Dave. 
Um, I'm giving it 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10, Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre, M-rated 114 minutes. What about you, Peter? Uh, not a bad film, 6 out of 10. And Greg? Well, there's nothing fresh or original here, and it's eminently forgettable, but it's certainly enjoyable while it's on screen. 6 out of 10 for me. I enjoyed it more than you guys, 7.5 out of 10 for me. Greg, I've just left you with no more than about 90 seconds to two minutes. Give us uh, Amadeus you saw uh, in Sydney. So worth this, seeing? Yes, it is. This is sort of to celebrate the Opera House's 50th anniversary, um, they're, and they're restaging Peter Schaefer's Tony Award-winning play, but because it's the Opera House, they incorporate elements of classical music and opera in there as well as a, a live orchestra plays snippets of some of Mozart's creations, including right. operas like The Marriage of Figaro, The Magic Flute and some of his music um, on stage live during the production there. Martin Sheen plays Salieri here, who is the very um, embodiment of the unreliable narrator there, but it's a more showy role, obviously. Their staging was quite simple at start, um, but, yeah, it goes for nearly three hours. And really good stuff. I'm going to give it eight and a half to nine out of ten. Wow. So nearly three hours. That's because of the musical accompaniment, is it? That, it that... is there, and there's a 20-minute inter intermission in there somewhere as well. So so genuinely nearly three hours. It's not just a two-and-a-half-hour work. It, three yeah. hours. Three... Uh, started at 7 o'clock, got out there just before 10. Okay, yeah, that includes the 20-minute interval. So um, was it a packed audience or not? Uh, fairly packed, yeah, at the Opera House, and they've redone the acoustics there, so it sounded fine. Is it a show that's going to travel? Is it going to come here or not, or you don't I know? I have no idea. This one's specially um, commissioned by the Opera House to celebrate their 50th uh -huh. anniversary. Right, okay. Was there anything else going on in the Opera House for the 50th anniversary that you noticed? There's quite a lot. There's quite a lot. I, I can't keep up with it all. There's all sorts of shows going on there. You'd have to go to the Opera House website to find out what else is going on there. Lots of performances and music events and things happening. Terrific. Peter, thank you very much and enjoy your year uh, after your birthday. Dave Griffiths, thank you very much for your involvement as well. And Gregory King, great to have you back from Sydney. We'll do it all again in seven days. Be good to one another and we'll catch you on First on Film and Entertainment. Entertainment.